Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. You should know where you are and hopefully you know who this is. This is Tyler Chef, and I am the co-host of the Cashflow Guys Podcast. This week I got Mike Marino is not flying again this week. Is this two weeks in a row, Mike? You caught me. Is you everything okay? Yeah, I just played the the whole union contract a little bit, and uh, I'm getting paid right now for talking to you. Did you get this? Are you sure you didn't get the sniffles and they grounded you temporarily? Why you talking <laughs> to me? You can't say that too loud. They'll look right. for any reason to get you. That's that's true. That's one of the stressful things for those of you who don't know about being an airline pilot is medical is a concern. You know, you get sick, you you don't go into work, or you decide to go into work with the sniffles and whatnot. But if a pilot gets sick, there's a lot of things that would not quote unquote ground you and I uh, folks at home, but it would ground a pilot. So they have to do an even better job of taking care of themselves because they are always at risk at being grounded, which is why I'll be honest with you. A lot of pilots start businesses to supplement their income because they always got to have that backup. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this week in the episode is some things that have been going on recently, Mike, that you've experienced as far as how that relates to, you know, kind of like a knee jerk shock reaction as far as um, getting caught up on price. Thoughts that's right. Thoughts on that? Beginning, especially when you're when you're working for for a dollar, right? I'm, I'm an airline pilot. That's my primary source of income right now. Sometimes you get high. Sometimes you get lows in your bank account, right? I just love starting new businesses. I don't know. It's just it's kind of a thrill. Maybe it's the whole control thing. I don't know, but I like it. The problem is like when I'm when you set up a new business, it takes a lot of what I call you know uh, manager startup funds. Or now I learned from my CPA, I should really be calling it a manager's loan. Because you want to make sure you're getting paid back from the company when it's profitable. That's right. another thing, too, when you do your taxes. It's a manager's loan. Well, that initial manager's loan has 0% interest, and it's coming straight out of uh, W-2 income. Now, every time I'm flying, I'm thinking, okay, I need to fly extra because I need to funnel this money into my new startup. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people stop. I'll be honest. I was about to stop a few months ago because I was like, oh, crap. I got, an, I got another bill for another G, another G, another G. And maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe this is a bad idea. My, my father was, well, I, I talked to you about him quite a bit. He's very risk averse, extremely risk averse. Be his generation. He was born in 47. But if there's any possible risk involved, he'll run away. And if I'm doing it, he screams at me on the phone. Folks at home listening, you should really ask the question I'm about to ask when you hear this is, what does dad do for a living, Mike? <laughs> uh, are we allowed to say this? On of course we are. My father is an accountant for the IRS. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about risk averse. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why his father is so risk averse. <laughs> he basks every day in seeing the idiocracy of the rest of America and how to run their businesses. <laughs> <laughs> that's like being a financial cop man we could have a whole podcast episode of the mindset of the irs oh we need to have your dad on the show that'd be awesome oh my god right after the episode aired next thing you know tyler would go missing i there'd be one flip-flop spinning around in a circle on duval street that's like where they snatched me up and took me away <laughs> or drawing <laughs> I'll, attention I'll, to him I'll, I'll just say this as a teaser to a podcast episode we talk about this a lot of cpas out there they claim oh uh, I was an IRS agent and now I'm a CPA. So you should trust me because I know all the rules. Run, mm. run like hell. Yeah. Because unfortunately, those CPAs think they're doing you a favor by being so conservative that they save you zero. In yep. fact, they make you pay more. That's a whole thing. A lot of my father's coworkers left to start their own CPA firms because they can tout, oh, I work for the IRS. That is not the person you want doing your taxes. That's right. That's right. 
I would prefer that my CPA be wealthy. Yeah. That's what yeah. I want. I don't want the, the the CPA that's not wealthy. So if I think my CPA is poor, I don't want any part of it. I've actually had CPAs that have done my taxes in the past that were not wealthy people. And they were they their life was hell. They hated their life. They hated everything about it. And they just basically lived right above the poverty line. And I thought, my God, that's that's not what I want. Uh, but every time I've had a CPA that was an entrepreneur owned real estate, that's one of the reasons I came up with that internal policy for myself is like, if you don't invest in real estate, you're not doing my taxes. No way. You're not giving me tax advice because what you're saying really is if you're not investing in real estate or you're not sheltering your income from taxes, you as the tax preparer can offer me nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why I'm such a big fan of Mark Kohler is because he teaches you how to, uh, use strategies like owning real estate to to avoid having to pay more than your fair share of tax. So I don't want to go out, way down a rabbit hole with that topic, but this is something, this sentiment of sticker shock is something that comes up every day across America. When I have my realtor hat on and people say, oh, look at that beautiful listing. When I put a property in the market, I use the best photographers money can buy. And when you see my listings come up, it could be the biggest turd on the planet you're going to look at it and go, wow, nice house. And then when I tell you the price, almost always, almost always, you'll hear that's overpriced. And if I don't hear it, I know that the buyer is thinking it uh, because of those, that, that's just the reality. I hear investors say this a lot. I'm here. I've, I've been hearing this for decades. You know, I've been investing in real estate myself now for two decades. People are constantly saying, well, I'm going to wait for the market to crash. I would get something, but it, everything's overpriced. Well, ha- my first question is, have you ever seen a property underpriced? And then they think about it and they think about it and they come up with a big fat no. Well, that guy's not going to sell me that for a discount. Well, for, wait a minute. What makes you think you need a discount? Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, you know, a good example of that is, I remember when I first bought my first rental property, it was a little condominium in St. Petersburg, Florida. For many reasons, my, my mother told me I shouldn't buy it. And to a large degree, if I tell you the rest of the story, which is too long for this podcast, uh, she would be right. But my mom didn't have real estate landlord experience. Yes, she's owned some rental properties over the years, but she really never took it to the grand scale. She'd buy a property, she'd fix it up, she'd lease it out for a couple of years, and then she'd usually with a partner, and then they'd sell it and, and reap the rewards. But she wasn't a full-time real estate investor ever. I was the first for full-time real estate investor in my entire family. And when this, with this condo, she had sticker shock. And you guys are going to laugh and you say it when you hear this, but the condo cost $21,000. <laughs> in St. Pete? In St. Pete. It was nice too. It was wow. a, a two bedroom, one bath, $2,100 or $21,000. Yeah. Right on, right on 4th Street, set back one block off of 4th Street, not too far oh. from home. Yeah. Great little condo. That's what they went for back then. That was just market rate. Two bedroom, one bath. Builder grade everything, builder grade cabinets built like in the 70s, right? Uh, nothing fancy, but it had a pool and it was a nice little place. The My mom at the time had said to me, that's you, you don't want to buy a condo. She was right about that. That's a topic for another episode. I've talked about that in the past. But you just don't want to buy that thing for a rental. Well, I did. Bought it anyway. And I went down to the bank. And at the time, I didn't have any credit because I was a young guy. I was... 22, I think at the time, or 23. Uh, and I didn't really have any credit established to speak of. Uh, the military giving me, gi- giving me the ability to finance things early in my life when I was 18, kind of put a hurting in the credit, good credit that I did have. So I went from good credit to 
bad credit to no credit because of time in the past. And long story short, I buy this place and I go down to the bank and I'm like, I want to buy this condo. And they're like, well, the price was so low because the average selling price of a two bedroom condo around that time was around $40,000. I had got a deal because I bought it from a friend of a friend that was in financial trouble, needed money, and they were tired of being a landlord. So I made a deal where I got this thing for about half price. And I went, and I didn't know anything about real estate investing, but I went down to the bank and I started asking questions. I want to get a loan. So they pulled my credit. Well, we have a hard time giving you a loan. I said, well, I want to buy a piece of real estate. Real estate is worth money. I mean, there's got to be a way I can do this. And the banker thought about it. The banker says, well, how much cash do you have? And at the time I had around $5,000 in liquid cash. And it's funny to even say that out loud. But the, uh, the banker's like, well, if you take that $5,000 and you open a CD with it, okay. we can use that CD and the property as collateral. I didn't even know what a CD was. I'm thinking compact disc, right? What am I going to do? Get Motley Crue, George Strait, Buffett, what? But so I learned a little bit about how CDs work. And I, I gave them my $5,000 cash. They gave me a CD. And you guys will love this. Back then, the rates were around 6%. So I was getting 6% on my money sitting in a, C, in a CD, which basically then I used that CD as collateral along with the condo so that the bank was in a very low risk position. And the bank then gave me a loan. And back then, this is probably 1993, I think is when I did this. So a long time. Oh my God, that's 1993. That's 20 years ago, isn't it? Uh, wow. 30 years ago. 30 years ago. I am old. That makes me want to stop this podcast. <laughs> Wow. So I guess I've been investing in real estate for three decades. My bad. I thought it was two. <laughs> Time flies. Anyway, uh, so 30 years ago, I buy this thing and my mortgage payments at the time were, I think it was, uh, I don't remember. It was like, it was under a hundred bucks is what my mortgage payment worked out to, or maybe just over a hundred bucks, but it was minimal. The maintenance fee was around $40. So my rent at the time, I think it was 450. So my positive cash flow on that deal uh, wound up being right around when it was all settled down in the wash, about a hundred bucks. And I remember telling my mother, hey, because that's, you know, a hundred bucks in 1992 was a lot of money or 1993. And I remember telling my mom, hey, I just, I did the deal. She's like, oh, that was stupid. Well, I got a hundred dollars positive cash flow. And this is guys long before I bought Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Reddit and any of that stuff. I just read somewhere that it was a good idea to buy rental property. So I go and do this deal. And all the time, my mom's saying, no, you're going to lose money. You're going to lose money. Well, to me, $100 was the moon and the stars. That was a lot of money because that's $100 a month, every month, no matter what. And then a few months into it, the lieutenant calls me and says, the toilet broke. What happened? Well, I sat on it and it broke. Of course. Well, the sound did anything wrong. Right. The tenant was a very robust woman, we'll call it. And apparently there was a problem with her breaking toilets. So initially, I remember I had to pay $50 to have a guy put a toilet in for me. And to me, that was 50% of my cash flow. I mean, I was, I was shuddering that 50% of my cash flow just went out the window. And then the handyman said, well, the new toilets are pretty cheap. So cheaply built. So I'm going to have, instead, I'm going to go down to the, the reclaim store. I'm going to buy a used toilet, an older one, and put an old solid porcelain used toilet in for you. And at the time, I was so concerned about the fact that I had to give up half of my cash flow for one stinking month, my net cash flow, to pay a little extra for that guy to clean it because he had charged me extra to clean a used toilet and put it in. 
And I remember being mad about that. And I remember also being mad about the fact that a used toilet was not water efficient. So I'd probably have to pay a bigger water bill because it was a condo and I had to pay I, the way I set it up with a tenant, not knowing any better is I paid the water bill. So I was trying so hard to save a nickel that I was stepping over dollars. Yeah. Well, in the end, what I realized is that at the end of the year, the lease came up for renewal. And I was still butthurt over that 50 bucks I had lost eight months prior because I looked at it as a loss. But when it came time to renew the lease, I had said to the tenant, I need to get another $50 in rent. And she easily agreed. Now, I meant one time. I just wanted an extra 50 bucks to cover my toilet. She meant every month. Oh, and no problem. No problem at all. She didn't care about the extra 50 bucks a month because she was a Section 8 tenant and she was only paying like, I don't know, 110 a month anyway. So she was already getting a ridiculous deal. The government was paying the rest. And yes, she did work and made money. She was just working under the table. Uh, so in the end, I was so fixated on what I was losing and I'm the victim and all these other things. I was so concerned about upsetting her, asking for a rent increase that I intended to ask her for one $50 payment. I wound up getting a whole year's worth of $50 payments because the tenant didn't care. It didn't matter to her because the other part of the story is when I met her, I realized one thing, she was a hoarder. She moved out of a four bedroom, four bath, big home in Northeast St. Pete on the water. Apparently when her husband died, she lost it mentally and was afraid to get rid of anything because it reminded her of her husband. He was the breadwinner. He was an airline pilot, Mike, uh, flew for Eastern Airlines back in the day. And although she had the, the income from the estate, for whatever reason, she was able to get SSI. And she, so she had plenty of money. I didn't know all this. But the bottom line is I was all fixated on the wrong things the whole time because my money mindset was off. I was so freaked out about how much I was going to lose or how much things were costing me that I was blind to see how much I could be making if I just made a few minor tweaks. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, uh, I'm running into the same same thing. So I'm doing this pilot crash pad in Las Vegas. Hmm? And uh, yesterday I was like, you know, I need to get all my income and expenses straight. Let me do my spreadsheets. I spent like six hours getting it all together, receipts and everything. And like you said, it's very easy, even for the experienced folks like yourself, to get fixated on the expenses and get sticker shock. Yep. So I tallied everything up and it came out to $21,000. Oh my God. Because I, I'm a W-2 worker. So all the money, all that $21,000 should have been into piggy bank. So I could just feel good and secure that I've got $21,000 extra in my bank account just sitting there. Right. Eroding. It's, but it's amazing how it just makes you feel better if it's sitting there and losing money, though, right? Just to see numbers on the screen or your your uh, bank app. It's like, oh, okay, I'm okay. But now that that $21,000 is into this crash pad, this house, it's like, oh, my God, what did I do? What did I do? I need to cancel my lease. And then I finished the spreadsheet. I'm like, wait a minute. All right, $21,000. Um, conservatively estimating $500 profit a month. So everyone's thinking, oh, my gosh. All this for only $500 a month? Then I did the math. Okay, that's conservative too. And that's so $6,000 a year divided by $21,000. Since it's a master lease, it's the expenses after the capital uh, setup cost is zero. That's 28.5%, almost 30% return. I'm like, wait a minute. 
30% return, that's damn good. Why freaking out? Literally, I was going to cancel it. I was about to get 30% return. So it's, I think I fell into the spell where it's easy. Where every time I spent a dollar, I'm like, uh, how long is it going to take for me to recover that dollar? Right. When, because we all want it to be recovered in a month or three months. But when you do the math, 30% return on my money, you know what? Why was I freaking out? So I'm a big math guy. So even, even me and you, it's so easy to get spooked and scared with perceived risk of the initial expense. And when you look out at the big picture, it's like, that's business. That's, that's right. just business. A couple of things I want to unpack there about that sentiment. Hey, number one, so you got that peace of mind, that $21,000 sitting in the bank. But is it fair to say that that's not the only money you have sitting in the bank that's not spoken for? That you have resources beyond the 21000 Oh, sure. Okay. You say, oh, sure. But a lot of folks don't. So I could get it if that was your last 21000 100% get it. There's something that Jill and I have phrased that Jill and I always say amongst ourselves that's the sleep at night. We do certain things because it makes us sleep at night. Mm-hmm. It may not be Dave Ramsey approved or Robert Kiyosaki approved or Suze Orman approved or whatever it is, but it's sleep at night. But in the end, if you have your sleep at night, and this is one of the best ways I can tell you guys at home, I talk to a lot of you that are very fiscally conservative, like me, like Mike, and in different varying degrees of that. But the first thing is, one of the things I will say about Dave Ramsey is, he's very good about rainy day planning. And when we took Financial Peace University many years ago, the one thing we got really good at was having that emergency fund in place. Because then I didn't really have to worry about the what ifs. When I moved to Key West, I remember the emotion of going through the change, going from not having to pay rent because I own my residences free and clear at the time. Uh, I didn't have any ex- living expense. There was no mortgage. There's no nothing. I just stayed for free. And that's a beautiful thing when you don't have a mortgage payment and you don't have rent. I mean, that's awesome. And I gravitated to paying $3,000 a month rent. Well, that's scary. So the way I overcame that was the first starting that six month, I put six months rent aside. And I didn't move to Key West until I had six months rent set aside. Real estate was doing good. So I was able to get it knocked out pretty quick. Six months rent. Uh, plus expenses, power, water, all the good stuff. And then as time went on, I started every time I would get a real estate closing, I would take a piece of that closing and I would put it towards my rent account, let it sit in that rent account. So fast forward to today, I've got right around two years of rent in, of rent expense. And my monthly living expenses to live in Key West set aside in a bank account. And it automatically sends a check every month to my landlord. It automatically pays the water bill. It pays the electric bill. And I don't even have to think about it. And for me, that's peace of mind. But here's the big benefit I got from that, besides just the peace of mind of having the money, is that it freed up my other free capital that I would normally be hoarding. Like, you know me, I'm a hoarder when it comes to cash. I'm tight like you are. I'm tighter. I'll flip anything. I'm not attached to any piece of property I own, real estate or otherwise. Because if I'm sitting here looking at this iPhone and and some sucker says that they think they're they're willing to pay me $2,000 for my $1,000 iPhone, guess what? I'll be shopping for an iPhone tomorrow because I just sold mine. That's just how I am. I can't help it. Uh, But at the end of the day, for me, one of the big things was I have that nest egg set aside to cover me from the that. Oh shit, I guess is the best way to say it. So I had that sleep at night. And I think those of you listening to the podcast, if you're, you're getting into real estate and a lot of you are like, oh my God, I could lose. Sure. But let's extrapolate what that means. What does that look like? 
What does that feel like? How does that sound? What does that taste like? For me, if I go, if I've got $20,000 sitting in the bank and going to go, go do a business adventure, that's an emotion that's exciting to a certain degree. But if I don't have any other money in the bank to pay next month's rent, well, if I make a mistake with that 21 grand, I got to move quickly because my landlord will have zero patience for the rent being late. Uh, so that's one bag of emotions right there. But if I've got $21,000 sitting in the bank and my rent is $1,500 and I've got two years of rent set aside, now I can put on a different pair of glasses and look at that because I have all that extra money set aside and earmarked. And I know a lot of you listening to this podcast maybe don't have these savings. And to you, I say this, before you get going on investing in real estate or investing in crash pads or investing in cargo vans or any of this stuff, here's the part, Mike, that you leave out. And then this is, I'm not faulting you, but for you, it's just, well, of course I would do that. It's, a, it's just how you are because you're fiscally conservative and you're highly intelligent when it comes to money, which is one of the reasons you're the CFO of this fund, investment fund. Folks at home, you need to have that six-month emergency fund set aside. Before you go out and try to invest, before you try to change your picture, get out of credit card debt. Don't let credit cards and all this consumer debt tear you apart. Many of you, because I've talked to you, I get a lot of people rescheduled still to this day, want to get on the phone and want to get going in real estate. I ask them, how much do you have in credit card debt? And there's usually a big fat pause. And then when they finally get down to it, it's shocking to me, some of the numbers that I hear. How much is your car payment? Oh, I got a new truck and it's $900 a month. What? Investing does not make any logical sense until you first do some house cleaning, clear the cobwebs. See, Mike, you don't have those cobwebs because you were, you were raised intelligently. You learned financial discipline early on. So for you, 20 grand, you got less of an excuse, brother, because you've got your, oh shit, set aside. You are already financially liquid. You own assets. You have net worth. And a lot of you sitting at home listening to this that don't have that, it's never too late. There was a time that I didn't know literally where my next dollar was coming from. When I first went to Hawaii, and I told you this story, Mike, when I went to work for Noah, I had to borrow $20 from my sister-in-law before I was getting on a plane to fly to Hawaii to start a new career with Noah. Jill and I were that broke. Our house was in foreclosure. My credit cards were maxed out and shut off. My credit card, my credit score was probably a two, right? When you pulled my credit report back then, those days, there was a fax machine. It probably spit out a copy, a pair of handcuffs and a wanted sign. But in the end, I was able to move past all that. I was able to get the debt paid off. I was able to get my financial house in order. I was able to put money aside. I just had a massive uh, deal blow apart on me. And there was a lot of upside in that deal. And I'm not a pat, not happy about the loss of that upside that was in my near future. That's not coming. But here's the thing. I'm not losing my mind about it because I have been diligent and Jill and I have been diligent about setting aside, even if it's 20 bucks a week, setting aside a little bit here, a little bit there till we got to that six months. And we did the six months, we got to 12 months. We had 12 months, 18 months, and so on. Now we're at 24 months or greater, well, probably a little more than that, where if I earned no more income for the next two years, if I was maimed and deaf and couldn't talk, I could pay all my bills, no problem for two years. And then I can panic. <laughs> so guys, when you're doing this and you're getting into real estate, you're like, when you're, if you're looking for this hundred percent financing that I see a lot of you posting on Facebook about, Hey, is there any hundred percent hard money loan dealers? 
stop. That means you're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where it gets dangerous. And know this, credit card companies are going to continue to let you borrow whatever you're willing to take. A lot of you that have a lot of credit card debt right now, and maybe you got a credit card, it was 18%. And I'm seeing reports, I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal the other day where credit card interest rates, in some cases, are 30 and 40%. 40%, wow. And those credit cards were at 18% or 15% just last year. Can you imagine? Wow. At some point, you got to draw a line in the sand and you have to stop thinking about borrowing and start focusing on setting money aside, getting intentional with your math. So now you've got your money set aside. Now you can look at the investment. Like in your case, Mike, you said, okay, I have this disposable income. I've already got my my emergency account set aside. I own my home. My rent situation, my housing situation will not change. I got good, long-term, predictable uh, interest rate on my loan that's fixed. It's not going to change. I own my vehicle free and clear. I can now take and have this discretionary income. So guys, what I love about what you did, Mike, is that Mike takes this money and yes, you have the knee-jerk reaction of, oh my God, this is this is no fun because if I put this money out there and it took you admittedly a couple months to get it rented up and that's because the marketing wasn't quite on point yet, but you got your marketing on point and now you lease the place up pretty darn quick. So now looking back at it, how do you feel now about that $21,000? Now I feel like that's a great investment. Absolutely. Yeah. So much so that you're looking for another crash pad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I hate to say be disciplined and everything, but discipline or curiosity. In my case, it's curiosity. Well, now, if you look at your expenses and say, hey, what expenses will not be on the next one? Your next rental property. Hey, I, I spent, I'll be honest, I spent $6,000 on getting a bulletproof lease written by my attorney. And then um, reviewed again by my CPA and then back to the attorney. So the CPA attorney went back and forth to make this bulletproof and perfect. So it cost me $6,000 for a piece of paper. Right. But now I could take that on to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. So I look at $21,000 a hurt, but a lot of those expenses I can now multiply uh, to other properties and then exponentially increase the profit. So That's right. Guys... It's the first step is always the hardest. And even if it's not your first step, it, it still is even hard. I'll say this too. Uh, you know, you talk about Dave, Dave Ramsey and keeping your six months reserve aside. I, when I see money in any bank account, I'm like, oh, I, I can, um, I can buy another house with that. So maybe I should use it. So m- all, almost all of my emergency fund is in gold and silver because now I physically have to take it out of my safe. And I have to take it two blocks away to the gold dealer downtown in Salido. Just that physical process is that kind of like the lock and barrier for me to like, uh, yeah, I, I won't, I can't touch that emergency fund unless I absolutely need it. Plus, it's not eroding away in the bank account either. Not for everybody, but for those who understand precious metals, that might be a way, might be, it helps me certainly, it might be able to help you in regards to kind of safeguarding your um piggy bank pretty much that's right it's absolutely right i love that idea and that's that's something that i do too is i leverage cash into uh, gold and silver because for me it's a number one it's a hedge against inflation it's not a get rich quick but it's there when i need it and if i ever get into a situation where things changed and i had to 
come up with some resources relatively quickly. Real estate is not liquid. So you can go get a home equity loan. Well, number one, you're not getting that for free. It comes with fees. But if I want to go sell a gold bar, if I need an extra five, 10 grand, I could go down to the vault, uh, get in a car, drive to the vault, pull the money out, pull the, the metal out, take it to a dealer, sell it, stick it on eBay, sell it, get that cash. But here's the best thing. Later, when things change and I want to replenish that inventory, I can do it. I can go online, I can go to my local dealer, buy gold, got buy silver, put it back on the stack, and it's there for the next time. No hassle, no fuss, no muss. Um, with that said, folks, what's important here is that you first eliminate your credit card debt because none of this makes any sense if, you, if you're carrying a ton of debt. Because that debt, if that money is sitting there, if you got debt, you're trying to flip houses and you're carrying credit card debt, you're already starting out probably with an 18 to 30% deficit right out of the right out of the gate. Thoughts on that, Mike? It's true. I'll be honest. I, I use my Amazon credit card for everything. Uh, I pay it off every month, so it doesn't accrue interest. And then now I discipline myself for, well, Tyler. Tyler and I both love do dads, right? Especially when it comes to Amazon. Ooh, I want, I need that. I need that. Right. I try to discipline myself where I'll only buy something if I get, you know, enough points in order to buy it for free. There you go. And, and uh, honestly, I'm kind of a, if it's a game to me, if it's a curiosity thing, then I'm more prone to do it. So that, that's my, uh, so yeah, credit card debt is, is bad, but if you do have credit cards, eh, what do you usually spend it on? In my case, it's Amazon. So now you can kind of discipline yourself further. But again, right. you got to discipline yourself and make sure that you can afford to pay it every month. Circling back, I, you know, we get back to the it's overpriced. I can't afford it. I can't, I can't, I can't. Doing something, folks, is better than doing nothing at all. Yeah. I have bought over the years stock. I've bought cryptocurrency. I've bought precious metals. Those things have gone up. They've gone down. I bought rental property. I've flipped houses. I bought vacant land. And then not everyone has been a winner by any chance. I bought notes. Um, all kinds of things. It's not that everyone will ever be a winner, but try to focus more on what you gain. And the reason this is why millennials, you see these younger folks get seem to seem to get rich. And I think a big piece of that is, see, Mike, you and I were taught to think about consequences. We were raised to fear the consequences of things. You learned it when you were a kid. You learned it by mom and dad taught to you. You learned it in college. If you don't get a good grade, if you don't turn in your homework, you will fail. So failure becomes a very overpowering emotion, so much so that it actually keeps people from succeeding. That fear of failure keeps the average person from succeeding in that generational area in my in our age group. The younger guys in their 20s and, and 30s, they're not really raised to think about consequences, which is probably why they start dumpsters on fire and raise holy hell. But they, they don't think as much about consequences so they're more willing to take action than people in our generation are and i think that's a big contributing factor of why they generally do better in business than people in our age group mike is because they're moving forward without letting constant the potential for consequences cripple them thoughts on that that's a good point then they probably don't have a father who was a uh, born in 1947 and worked for the irs for 53 years right he is yeah Probably still on a fixed income. My mom, same way, real estate broker for 40 years. Not wealthy by any means. Um, so there you go, right? That's that generation. And we, we were we were taught to, if we don't do things the right way, we're going to be in some kind of trouble. So guys, in the end, it comes down to 
all these things that are coming up and in the last few months, especially man, I am seeing all kinds of, they call them liar loans or no income verification loans. They're handing out credit cards like candy, you know, on the, you'll read one thing in the, in the journal about the banks are tightening credit restrictions and tightening, 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 but man, in the commercial credit sector, the, the consumer credit side of things, they're just giving money away hand over fist. I go to the post office, pick up my mail here in Key West and next to the counter where you sort your mail are these huge trash cans where people put all their credit card things in, you know, your junk mail. And it's like to recycle. That thing is overflowing all the time. And then so much so that a lot of times people just throw the junk mail in the trash. And I see the same stuff over and over again. Get a Capital One card, get this, get that, free airline miles, free this, free that. Everybody is going out of their way to get into your pocket right now. Companies are feeling the pinch. Banks, interest rates are high. The cost of borrowing money for banks is high. They're in trouble. And the only way they're going to bail themselves out is to take advantage of you. So instead, when you're looking at things to do with your money, instead of using that money to pay a bill for doodads that you don't need, think about investing that money into something tangible that can give you a return back. Not a get rich quick, just a return back. Mike, $500 a month. That's a lot of money for some people and a very little money and not worth their time for others. Now, if you folks are home sitting or listening to this. When Mike said $500 a month is his profit from the crash pad, you made a judgment call. Either that to you was a lot of money or maybe it wasn't a lot of money for you and maybe not worth your time. And if you're in the camp that says it's not worth your time, I, I ask you to do this. Take five $100 bills, crisp green ones. I want you to stick it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and write Bogdol Tyler, EO Box 4591, Key West, Florida, 33041, and mail me that insignificant $500, and you will have a place in Tyler's heaven. How about that? <laughs> you think I'll get any envelopes with cash in them, Mike? Or is Maybe $500 should, important to everybody? Keep, in the we should start with that line, I think, on the next podcast and just do it over and over and over. So eventually, people will be hypnotized and send some, send some money. That's right. Hey, don't forget to send your $500 to Uncle Tyler. That's it. <laughs> I'm getting ready to open up the prayer machine again, and you're going to be the first contestant. <laughs> Just send me $500 every chance you get, every month, <laughs> and I will take it and, and live happily ever after. All right, guys. Well, just to kind of summarize, wrap it up, put a bow on it here. At the end of the day, it's very easy to sit back and judge, cross your arms and say, well, it's too expensive. I can't do it. It's not going to work or whatever. But instead, we kind of laid out a pretty clear path today. First, get keep your house in order. Get your financial house in order. You hear Robert Kiyosaki talk about it. You hear Suze Orman talk about it. You hear Dave Ramsey, Grant Cardone, get your money right is what Grant Cardone says. That's what he means. This is good advice that you're getting, but it doesn't. it's never going to be good advice to you if you don't start taking action and following it. Mike, any parting thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, one last thing. We, we talked about risk. $500, if it's worth the risk or not for you. Always think about how to mitigate that risk. For example, housing prices are too high. Maybe you should do a master lease, arbitrage. Because people who, a lot of people who are leasing their homes, they got it for like 2% interest rates. Maybe they bought it in 2009, where they bought it for one third the price it is now. And literally, they pass off that savings onto you in the way by they lease it to you and then you can sublease it. Obviously, you got to talk with them. And I highly recommend. You talk directly with the landlord uh, rather than have a middleman if you're going to do a sublease and arbitrage like that. But I think the most important lesson is 
in order to mitigate your risk, think about yourself. What line of business are you currently in? What have you experienced in your life? Would you be like, you know what? I have been the customer on that end of that particular business model. I know what I like. I know what other people like, whether, you know, the Marriott hotels or just any line of business you're in. For example, I was a federal, uh, I used to fly for NOAA. So I used to commute back and forth to work on with my car to the airport. And then I figured out, wait a minute, I would love it if there was a free van service that the government would pay for, where literally the government picked me up and drove me to work every day for free. I would love that. So because I was already in the consumer mindset of what my customer wants, I understood my customer more than customer than more than anybody else. Now you're able to fine tune an investment where you're reducing the risk as much as possible because you are the customer and you understand them than anyone. I'm an airline pilot. Right now I cater to other airline pilots and I do that because I understand the customer and that mitigates the risk. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, guys, we're going to leave it right there. We hope you found value in this episode. And more importantly, we hope you take action. That all begins by getting off the couch and doing something different. If this is not the best year you've ever had, guess what? You have control over that. You can make a positive change to to wind up with a different outcome, a better outcome, one that will take 2023 from being an average year or maybe a, a below average year and making it the best year you've ever done. It's only September, folks. The year is not over. I've uh, still got a couple months. Have a great one. And uh, we'll catch you in the next episode. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to CashflowGuys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas. So you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.